Good morning. I forgot to say that when I got up to pray. So I just inserted it there. Didn't want you to miss your good morning. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But God raises the dead. Starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory for the sun, and another glory for the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust and is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, when Paul is writing these words about resurrection and the resurrection from the dead for all the rest of the world, He's trying to explain something in the midst of a very confused world about what death, burial, and resurrection really is. At this point in the church, everybody understands that Jesus has risen from the dead. There are some who still question it, right? But they still understand that this is a basis of reality that the Christian church is standing on, that Jesus literally rose up out of the dead, that this dead body they stuck in this stone cave on Friday evening, came back to life on Sunday morning and walked out of the grave. Not some spiritualized idea, not some ghost, right? If you remember Jesus's appearance to his disciples was very intentional to disprove any idea that he was a ghost or a spirit. I am human flesh. Come, look, touch, put your fingers, put your hands in my side and touch the spots and the holes in my hands where the nails had been. He was very intentional about making sure they understood this was a physical body that had risen from the dead. He even ate some bread and fish afterwards. I don't have a lot of experience with ghosts, but what little bit of knowledge about ghosts I do, they don't really, they don't eat. I mean, even in the movies, right? You ever watch Ghostbusters? You got the one ghost that does a lot of eating, but it's like he's never full. 
Jesus goes, he's intentional about showing that he is a real, true, physical body risen from the dead, not something else. And why does he go to all those links? Why does he go to such effort to prove that he's really physical in his resurrected state? Partly because he knew that as the time went forward, people would be hard, it would be hard for them to believe that someone has risen from the dead. Okay. The other part of it is he wants them to understand his resurrection is different from other resurrections because you realize that Jesus wasn't the first person in the Bible to rise from the dead. He wasn't the first. There was Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Then before Lazarus, there was Jairus' daughter. I'm thinking there's somebody else that I missed that Jesus raised from the dead. Then you got to go all the way back to Elijah and Elisha. Both of them raised someone from the dead. But this is still different. Even though Jesus isn't the first to rise from the dead, he is still different from the others, right? Because, because in, when, okay, we gotta, we gotta honestly deal with this because when we look at scripture, he's not the first person to rise from the dead. Yet, what does Paul say over and over in his letter to the churches? He is the first fruits of those who've risen from the dead. Wait a minute, Paul, he's not the first person to rise from the dead. Yes, that's correct. But he's different in multiple ways. The first way that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is different is that he raised himself. All the other ones, a human agent stood over the dead person and spoke words to rise them from the dead through the power of the Spirit. Nobody spoke over Jesus' dead body except God the Father. He came out of that grave of his own power and strength, not from some human agent acting on his behalf. That's the first and one of the most significant ones. The other thing that's different about his resurrection is he does not have a mortal human body after his resurrection. All the previous ones had mortal human bodies again. If you remember, even though scripture doesn't talk about it, we know that every person that was raised from the dead in the Bible before Jesus died again. Right? The young boy that Elijah raised from the dead. He died again at some point. Jairus' daughter that Jesus, I mean, even Jesus raised two people from the dead and they still died later. Jairus' daughter died at some point and Lazarus died. Again, they experienced death twice. Kind of makes you wonder, was Jesus really doing them a favor when they got to die twice? He, in his resurrected body, it is not the same. It is different. It is what we now come to understand as the glorified body, the one which is an eternal body. And that changes everything. And the reason it changes everything is not just because it's different from all the other ones. The reason that it's different from all the other ones is why it changes everything. This is the new beginning. This is the new heaven and the new earth in its embryonic stage when he walks out of the grave that Sunday morning 
and begins walking around Jerusalem in this new glorified body that is not mortal, but immortal, that is not subject to all the same degradation that we experience in all of our lives, right? Now I'm looking around here and most, most everybody in this room has got a little bit of age to them, right? And most of us have already begun to experience the uh, degradation of the physical body, right? Lord knows I do. I absolutely feel it after three hours on an airplane, right? And I know that, you know, a few years ago, it didn't feel that way after three hours on an airplane. But it's just been in, in just a few years. I can tell the difference in this physical body. I can tell. I see where it's going. And it doesn't look pretty. Of course, it never really was very pretty from the beginning. Right? I mean, my cutest phase was when I was from zero to two years old. And after that, it's just been downhill as far as the appearance goes. And now all these physical things are beginning to happen to me. And I know that death will eventually come. And at certain moments, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Right? Y'all, we all understand there's just moments when physical pain and is unpleasant. And it reaches a level where, you know, if Jesus was to decide to take me home today, I'm okay with that. Right? And this is the this is where most of us are going to be at some point as our bodies continue to degrade because of the sin nature and the fallen state of humanity inside our own physical flesh. We often think that the fallen nature of our humanity, the fallenness of man is a spiritual, emotional thing. And it is true, but it look, fallenness is a whole person thing, heart, mind, body, and soul. Our whole personhood is fallen. And we start to experience it in all these different ways. And Christ's resurrection from the grave with this new glorified body isn't just about the salvation. That's the most important part. But it's not only that. It's that plus the promise of being what God originally created and intended for us to be as whole persons, heart, mind, soul, and body. And that's the promise that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians. As Jesus gives his, as he spends uh, 40 days after his resurrection, walking on the earth, revealing himself to at least 500 people minimum, at some point during those 40 days, you have, we have all this evidence of his resurrection. I mean, we could just sit here and we could go through all of the apologetics of the evidence to show that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But I don't have time to do that today. What we do know is the evidence is there. And the immediate question is why? Why so much evidence? Because we need to know that his resurrection from the dead is literally true. It is not metaphorically true. It is literally true. And he, as the resurrected one, is that is his evidence. It is the proof that he is the Messiah promised in all of the Old Testament. And because he is the promised one, we can now stand in the new covenant that he created on the night of his betrayal and that he fulfilled on the cross when he died. 
And this resurrection from the dead on Sunday morning, it's his crowning moment as the Messiah. Yes, there is a moment in the future, what we understand is moment in the future, in which we will see a literal crown placed on the head of Jesus as the king of the universe. But his ascension to the throne of heaven took place as he ascended out of the grave. And this resurrected body that he has also brings with it the promise and the hope of resurrection for us from the dead. And this is the promise Paul is referring to when he talks about what does this look like? He's in a place in a time in which the idea of being resurrected from the dead is perplexing to people. It's a culture that can't comprehend what he's describing. Now, it's easier for us as Westerners because of our experience in the Christian tradition and the exposure to it over the centuries. But it's still complex and confusing to people in Paul's day, especially Greeks and Westerners of the Western Greek mindset there in the city of Corinth in this day. And they're like, this just doesn't make sense, Paul. I mean, what does this resurrection thing look like? I understand, okay, so we're supposed to rise from the dead, but when does that happen and why does it happen and what does it look like? This is just weird, Paul. You need to tell me what's going on here. And that's what Paul is trying to do. And even the language here that Paul uses is sometimes confusing in itself. But what language is he supposed to use? What kind of images is he supposed to use? How do you communicate to mortally bound humans immortality? Right? We've all heard the story of how do you explain to a fish what life outside of the water is like? Right? Fish has no concept of what life outside of water is like because they've never experienced outside of water. And if they did, it was very unpleasant, right? Metal hook in their mouth, thought they were getting a nice free meal. They ended up outside the water on the bank flopping around in a very painful and unpleasant experience. And maybe they get thrown back in. And then they tell all their friends, oh, you don't want to be outside of the water. It's really not pleasant. It's a brutal experience. You don't want to do that. And what do we hear from people about death? Oh, it's a brutal experience. You don't want to do that. Well, yes. But we have no way of understanding what immortality is like living in a mortally bound world. So what does this resurrected body look like? How do you explain a resurrected body and what that is when there's no reference point to anything like that here in this world? Jesus is literally the only person who's walked on this earth in a resurrected, glorified body. Everything else is us just straining at the bolts to try to come up with imagery and language to communicate an idea of what this is like. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's just trying his best to communicate something that is almost, almost incommunicatable. It's almost impossible to do what he's trying to do. And the best that he can do, even under the influence of the Spirit, and now us as those receiving these words under the influence of the Spirit, the best that we can do is start to grasp concepts of what this is like. We're never going to be able to grasp it completely 
until we've experienced it ourselves. Now, for some folks, that's a frustrating thought. You're going to tell me that I need to understand something that I cannot understand until the day I get to experience it personally. Yes, that's correct. But, but I can't got it. Then I don't need to understand it. No, yeah, that's right. Yeah, true. You don't. You don't need to understand it once you've experienced it. What about between now and then? I don't know. Maybe you should just try living by faith. I mean, what an original concept. Let's just live by faith that this is really real. So here's the best we can do. Paul describes it as a grain being sown in the ground. Now, I find it fascinating that he uses that one because what do we do with a dead body? We bury it in the ground. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul chooses that imagery to try and explain it, right? And that this kernel, just like the body, has to be sown into the ground and there it perishes. But in the process of perishing, it's transformed into something even greater and more amazing. But even the idea of a grain of corn or wheat dropping into the ground and then turning into and transforming, even that still doesn't give us, it's still weak. It still, it still doesn't work all the way at understanding what this is like because it's not the same, but it's a different. And we understand that little bit from what he's saying here. And then we come to this question of, okay, so, so, so it's different. Okay, but how is it different, Paul? What's different about it? And then he comes into this, this glorious explanation of how it's different that we could spend the rest of our lives trying to comprehend and understand this. I mean, listen to some of these descriptive phrases. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. Just as the glory of the sun is different from the glory of the moon and the glory of the stars are different from the star to star. Okay, so this is going to be, right, so our, we start to grasp some of the things about this. So our resurrected bodies will be of a different kind of glory than our current physical mortal bodies. Okay, I'm on board with that. Got it. I'm good with that. I'm all good for more glory. I don't know about you, but I am. I'm all good for more glory. Right? And then he he uses these other phrases, like down in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead that what is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. Okay, so we kind of get the perishable part about these physical bodies because we all understand death is coming and sooner or later it's going to happen, right? And then the resurrected body, though, is imperishable. Wow, what is that? Wait, okay, let me think about this for a second. So this thing will fall apart. Okay, I see that happening every day. And then when I die, it's going to be put in the ground. But when you raise me from the dead, Jesus, I will have an imperishable body, one that cannot die. Okay, that sounds actually pretty good. I'm on board with that too. Right, does it mean I right? I, but can I get one that doesn't have bad knees and bad shoulders, or at least knees and shoulders that don't go bad? Right? I mean, 
if I'm not going to get, if, if I'm going to get an imperishable body that can still have bad knees, can I pass on the body part? Can we just leave me in the dead? Right? Is imperishable. Okay, but wait a second. If it's imperishable, that means it's not subject to all the degradation that these bodies are. So the knees won't go bad. The shoulders won't go bad. We'll actually be able to lose weight and keep it off. Maybe we won't ever gain weight. Right? Because, because this imperishable body that is raised from the dead is not subject to the same physical degradations that the ones we know today are. Otherwise, it couldn't be imperishable. Right? This is one of those places where I think science fiction is actually kind of helpful. You may have heard of a story or a movie called The Highlander. It's the story about a group of immortals, individuals who cannot die. And one of the characteristics is when someone kills them, they come back to life. But they come back to life in the point where their immortality took place in their life. Right? And the main character of the story is this Scottish Highlands person named uh, Duncan. right? And he dies at like the prime of his life. Late 20s, early 30s, vigorous, healthy, strong, you know, kind of kind of thing that every guy wishes he was, right? And he, he dies at that moment, and that's where his immortality begins. And so every time someone kills Duncan, he reverts back to that late 20, early 30-something guy that's really strong, really powerful, really well-built, almost perfect, right? That imagery of what we see in the Highlander is another imagery of what it's like for us to receive an imperishable body, right? One that stays at the perfect prime of life moment all throughout eternity. And do we ever see any external evidence that this is true, right? Interactions with people and listening to people who've gone through near-death experiences can be challenging to understand and separate truth from reality, but there are some common traits throughout each of these stories that when they interact with someone who has passed away, they interact with the young prime of life person. That's a common feature in each of the near-death experiences. It's not the same as something from Scripture, but there's something to it when multiple people over centuries of time, have near-death experiences, and they each describe the same kind of event or experience. There's something there. Not the same as Scripture, but there's something there. And then Paul goes on to describe other things about our resurrected, glorified bodies, and that they are more spiritual that what is sown is in verse 44 is this natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Our first bodies, as he goes on in chapter, I mean, verses 45 and 46, he goes on to describe our bodies that we understand today, the ones we live in, being like the first Adam, who was born a physical person, right, and became a fallen person. 
But then Jesus comes along and becomes a life-giving person. And that our new bodies are in this manner much more like what God designed for our bodies to be than what we are today. Right? Because right, you all, everybody understands, right, that, that what we are today is not what we, we were really designed originally to be. We are the consequences of this fallen world and the things around us and the choices that we've made. But this was not the way God created it to be, but as a consequence of sinful nature entering into us. But when we are resurrected from the dead, that element will be taken away and we will become like our Savior, Jesus. And we see this described very particularly in Revelation at the end of the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. I won't take the time to read it to you because our time is growing short. But we see this resurrection, these new heavens and new earth where nothing is like what we understand today. Not just no sin, but no sorrow, no pain, no agony. It's gone forever is what we see described there. So all of this promise of what the resurrected body will be like as a result of Christ himself rising from the dead and sealing the promise of what we are to receive does still raise a lingering and uncomfortable question. Do we have to die? Can't we just kind of jump from what we are to this? Can't we just, can't we just do that and skip the death part? Well, it is true that uh, Scripture describes a moment in time when Jesus returns and those who are living will be able to jump without death. At least that's the way we read it. Perhaps, though, that there's something in between that Scripture is not describing, right? because we understand that when the Bible describes future events, it doesn't describe it in a detailed narrative the way we want it. It describes it with the main ideas and the important points of what's going to happen. It's possible that there is something like death that those individuals will experience. But even still, no matter what, the bottom line is only those who are walking around on the earth on the day Jesus comes back get to do this. The rest of us, which has been through the millennia, are going to probably experience death. And so... Do we have to die? Yes, we do. Why? Why? Why do we have to die? Isn't it enough that Jesus died on the cross for us and rose from the dead and has given us new life in his name and washed us and sanctified us through his blood? Isn't that enough to keep us from having to die? No. It's not. But then why do we have to die? It's because death is the natural consequence of our sinning against God. God has provided a way to restore us and redeem us and sanctify us and give us the promise of a new life here on this earth and in the next 
even to the promise of resurrected bodies after we have died. But death is still the consequence of our sinful choices and our rebellion against our Father in heaven. And because we've done this, we still have to live with the consequence of it. Now that raises a fair question of why. Why can't God just wipe that off to a map too, right? If he wipes away all my sins, why can't he just wipe away this part too? I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew, but I don't. All I can say is he's just in his wisdom and loving kindness chosen not to. And in him doing so, it's not because he's punishing us. But even in the midst of death, he is loving us. Yes, death has no sting. It hurts. Everybody I've talked to who's in the process of dying in a hospital bed describes a painful experience. But death has no sting because it's not permanent. It is temporary. And the promise of his resurrection for all of us who walk in the newness of Christ is sure. And even death itself is not who we were meant to be. And therefore he will not leave us there, but instead will rise us up with him so that we will enjoy all the goodness and joy that there can be experienced. We can never experience all the fullness of joy of walking with our Father in these fallen bodies. So one of the answers to the question, why do we have to die? We got to get rid of these things. We got to get rid of this body. It's got to go away. And the only way it can go away is for death to come. Now, I'm not necessarily eager to see that happen tomorrow. Like most people, I'm not looking to die right away. But I understand that it has to happen and I can trust him for that day. I know that my day of death is firmly fixed in heaven and that until that day comes, I am as safe on the battlefield as I am in my own bed. And when that day comes, I am no safer in my bed than I am on the battlefield. And because that day is firmly fixed, I know that everything he is doing in between now and then is so that I will grow in my trust of him. I mentioned this last week. You may remember, well, don't we trust, you know, how much, how much trust does he have to build in us? Isn't it enough that I trust him with the rest of my life on this earth? No, it's not. We have to, he has to continually build his trust in us until we can trust him through death. Look, all around our culture, all around our society, in the movies, in literature, the one thing that reeks over and over and over from all of those stories is how people trust up until the moment of death comes. And then they decide they're going to trust themselves. I can trust the doctor until it's time for me to die. I can trust this person. I can trust that person. I can trust this. I can trust that. Until death itself comes into my room. Then I stop trusting and only trust myself. But God, in his rich mercy and love for us, continually grows and expands our trust in him so that we can trust him through death.
And even in our deaths, we can be an encouragement to others. You know, one of the, you know one of the places where my trust in God through death took a huge, gigantic leap forward was listening to D.L. Moody's death experience. D.L. Moody, one of the great evangelists of all times, was lying on his bed dying, knowing that his day had come for death. Surrounded by his family. I mean, he had the kind of death experience everybody would love. Surrounded by his family, you know, majority of his brain was still functioning, right? He still was aware, still able to really be coherent in his death. Surrounded by his family, singing psalms, singing hymns, speaking of the glory of Christ that he was about to meet in person. Then came the moment of death for D.L. Moody. And as he's dying, losing consciousness, and his final breaths are leaving his body, he says these words, this is death? He spoke it as a question of shocked amazement. This is what everybody's afraid of? Are you kidding me? This is what everybody's afraid of. It wasn't anything fearful for him. That was the moment I realized you can trust God through death. And the death experience for the believer will never be the kind of death experience that the rest of the world sees and fears. That doesn't mean that our deaths occur in circumstances that are sudden and frightening. But the death experience itself will not be fearful when our trust is in him. And we will be able to say like Moody, this is death? And then the next breath will be the glory of heaven and the joy of our Savior's face. But that's only for those of us who believe in Christ, who see him as the resurrected Savior, delivering us from our sins and giving us the hope of a new life. And my friends, I plead with you, wherever you are on that continuum of belief, if you're in the beginning not even sure if Jesus is who he says he is, I'm telling you, he is. He really is who he says he is. And you can put your faith in him today for being the redeemer of your soul and your heart and your mind and one day your body too. And for those of us who do believe that but are still working through the continuum of belief and trust in our Father, Expand your trust in him today. Know that no matter how bitter and unsweet the moment may be, there is the sweetness of the hope that he will continue to redeem us even to the point of a new body. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus for what he has done and what he is going to do. Believe that he is alive. Receive this gift of new life in Christ and then live with the hope of eternity. That is my plea to you today, my brothers and sisters. And as we get ready to sing and respond to what he has done through the song, Our God Reigns, as we get ready to respond to that song, sing it like someone who knows that he reigns even over our death, and he reigns over our resurrection from the dead. Oh, amen. Let's pray.
Glory to you, O Father. Glory, hallelujah. What a glorious gift you have given us in our Savior Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the promise and the hope of what you will do in us the rest of our mortal lives and then throughout the rest of eternity in our immortal bodies. And we praise you now, O Father, our God, who reigns over all things. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.